Hey, happy Friday. I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I'm a local licensed pastor in the United Methodist Church in northeastern Oklahoma, and uh, I've been putting out videos hoping to kind of uh, help people navigate the United Methodist Church and the developments going on right now in the denomination. I'm a conservative, um, and I, I try and read through the news and developments in ways uh, that help me make sense of the world and hopefully make sense uh, for other conservatives. On Fridays, I like to do just a roughly 30-minute um, thing to, to try and review some of the more uh, salient topics of things going on. Uh, the, the first topic, you know, I'm going to be covering uh, disaffiliation, stuff at Asbury, uh, stuff from the jurisdictional conferences, and um, some, some commentary from other people on um, how appropriate resistance is or rebellion is within the denomination. So a lot of connection points. I've already done a lot of other videos that intersect today, and I'll make reference uh, to those. Um, the first topic I'm talking about is disaffiliation. Um, both of my churches held dis disaffiliation votes this last Sunday, and uh, there was one vote between the two churches not to disaffiliate. So in the Oklahoma Annual Conference, we have um, a process for disaffiliating. This is not the last step, so it's, a, it's far from a done deal, um, but just all, all cards on the table. Um, I, as a pastor, I'm following my churches wherever they go, so if they disaffiliate, uh, I'll be leaving with them. Uh, but I'm a Methodist through and through, and I care about the United Methodist Church. It's the, it's the body that I was born into and baptized in and, and uh, married in and have raised my kids in. So anyway, I wanted to start with a, an article written by Reverend David Wesley Donnan. He's a Methodist pastor in South Georgia. This was promoted by uh, the Institute for Religion and Democracy, and it's just a, a six-point, here are some good tips for leading your church through disaffiliation as a pastor. And he starts off real strong by referencing Andy Stanley, who is, uh, I think, increasingly a progressive pastor, but he, he's known as a good communicator. And um, uh, so here's, here's the six uh, steps that Andy Stanley recommends Number one is be as clear as possible. And so he quotes Andy Stanley saying, the art of clarity involves giving explicit and precise direction in spite of limited information and unpredictable outcomes. Now, one would think, if I'm reading through this, I must have done a good job at all six of these. I read through this yesterday. I'm not sure how clear I was in um, giving explicit and precise direction to my churches. Um, in the, you know, they were in the discernment process for... Uh, over a year. They've been talking about it for a long time. I tried to give good, up-to-date information when they asked me, but I'm not sure I ever just gave explicit and precise information. Uh, a lot of times when you do that, people call that misinformation. So uh, I, I always tried to to provide just accurate information. But um, the second one here, uh, be openly biased. And this is something that I do think is important um, it, it's it's weird when someone claims to be not biased. Uh, to me, all that says is that a person lacks self-awareness. Uh, but but everybody has biases, and we need to own those, uh, own up to those as as we lead people through them. Uh, number three is to be as charitable as possible, and this is something that I struggle with, but I think I'm better at than than most people, and that's partly why I'm doing this channel. Uh, the, the key thing I, I highlighted here is how important it is to try and steel man the other side's argument. If you can't say the other side's argument in a way that is compelling or convincing, then that indicates that you really don't understand it. Uh, 
And I think that that's really common in the current setup. Uh, I think people willfully do not understand the other side, and that causes all kinds of problems down the road. Number four is empower the church to decide, um, and that that is important for obvious reasons. I'm going to talk about uh, a church that uh, chose not to let their people decide here in a minute and how weird that is, uh, but why it is that some churches might be tempted to go this route, but it really is important to let your people speak and think for themselves. Otherwise, uh, you're, you're guilty of the same thing that you think the United Methodist Church is guilty of, namely you're causing people to go where they don't want to go. You know, So don't be a hypocrite. Number five, go along the journey with your leaders. Um, so he talks about the importance of whatever church leaders you have, keep them in the loop. The temptation might be to keep someone out of the loop if they're not on board with you to begin with, but um, I think that's kind of corrupt and, and problematic. Uh, he, he notes at the bottom, all your key leaders need to be part of these conversations that you have, um, and then he highly recommends getting a lawyer. Um, that makes sense for larger churches, maybe, where it's going to be real adversarial with, uh, but you know, it's not, we didn't get a lawyer. We did sign on with the NCLL, but uh, we didn't utilize them at all in this process. Uh, so they, they, they're not, you don't need a lawyer to walk through paragraph 2553. You just need someone who can read through instructions, cross T's, dot I's. Um, I might, <laughs> some people might be angry at me for saying that, but there's no need getting litigious if you don't have to get litigious. I said it wrong the first time. The last thing was keep your in-house conversations in-house. Um, I'm a little bit different from him. You know, he talks about how inappropriate it is to talk about it on Sunday morning in worship. Absolutely. You know, it's not a worshipful thing. Um, but outside of worship, there should be conversations happening. Um, there's no reason why the only conversations happening amongst the whole body are Sunday mornings. So there, there should be conversations at least happening between your leadership and regular members of the church. But don't, don't, I don't think it's a good idea to keep the conversation enclosed within the church board or trustees or whatever. Let everybody be talking and asking questions. Um, so I hope that was useful to you. I, I think it's helpful just to think through these things. Uh, a lot of annual conferences going through this right now. I've already reported on uh, trials in, in North Georgia and Arkansas and stuff going on in West Virginia and most recently Kentucky. I recently learned Holston Annual Conference is making things really difficult. They're on a very small timeline to get out. They're not going to hold... Um, uh, well, I, I shouldn't speak... I'm going to do the research before I speak about Holston. Um, but, but doing disaffiliation well is something that a lot of pastors are in the position of doing, and they're very intimidated. So um, I'll, I'll have the link to this and all other articles at, at the in the show notes for this. All right, the next... Uh, bit that was connected to this was an article from Cynthia Assel uh, in uh, UM Insight. I think this is her her uh, publication. Texas megachurch relents, follows UMC rules to exit the denomination. This is um, about St. Andrew's United Methodist Church in Plano, Texas, and they seem to have done a thing. I, I saw this this YouTube video yesterday <laughs> by uh, the Pickland Parson. Stan Copeland, who is uh, regularly disingenuous to uh, people he disagrees with, but he talked about in the show notes here, St. Andrews and First Frisco, 
who have both uh, utilized, uh, he doesn't name them in the actual video. I thought that was an interesting uh, decision. Um, they initially came out with a declaration. Um, well, it wasn't, I don't know if she has the original date on here, but they said that they were going to disaffiliate. They were not going to abide by the provisions of paragraph 2553. They weren't going to have a church vote. Rather, they were going to keep it in-house. And it was kind of, I remember reading at the time, it's, it felt like a dare to the to the conference to file suit. Uh, Texas is um, known as being very friendly to local churches against denominational bodies, and maybe they, they, saw, they thought they were sitting pretty. But uh, North Texas Annual Conference issued a statement on February 22nd announcing that close to 900 members of the 6,500 member, you know, I don't think she provides any comment on that, but when there's 6,500 members and only 900 vote, that's interesting. Um, they, there was a 90, 98% margin to leave the UMC. Uh, in addition, the statement said St. Andrew will now comply with the UMC's rule that existing congregations pay their regional units two years financial contributions known as apportionments, along with a portion of two years clergy pensions. Well, okay. So that's the pastor there. That's Arthur Jones, and she talks about on page three. I don't know why you can't have it all on one page. His father is Bishop Scott Jones, uh, who is one of three bishops in the Global Methodist Church, which, of course, is the split away from the UMC Church. Um, But it says here, let's see if I can highlight it, St. Andrew's leaders have said that the congregation will not join the Breakaway Global Methodist Church started in May of 2022 by dissident traditionalists, despite its pastor's familial ties to a proponent of the new denomination. I just think that's really interesting. I want to know how set in stone that is. I I have a hard time believing that, but if that's the case, then it sounds like they're going their own route. I know that there have been a lot of uh, larger United Methodist churches. I I think this one would be considered a larger... I think she says, oh, it's on page one, where they stack up against other churches. They're the second biggest church in their their conference and the seventh biggest church, United Methodist Church, in Texas. So this is a big church, and there's a lot of pressure for big churches to just become an island unto themselves or to join... um, things more like federations where they can still govern themselves how they want, not be answerable to a a more controlling denominational body. Who knows if those forces are at play here. But it's just interesting. Disaffiliation is spelled out pretty explicitly in the Book of Discipline. There needs to be a church vote. It's just strange that there are churches trying to work their way around here. I wonder if I got the wrong impression from Stan Copeland. I would not at all be surprised But if they were trying to go around the congregational vote, that seems strange. Um, The second thing I wanted to talk about today was Asbury. Asbury wrapped up the revival yesterday. This is the UM News uh, page. And even though Asbury is not official United Methodist um, Seminary, it's not one of the 13, it is the College of Bishops, not the the U.S. Senate, not U.S. Senate, (laughs) the United Methodist Senate that acknowledges... Uh, different seminaries that can train United Methodist clergy. Asbury's on there, but UM News has not at all covered anything related to the revival until this week, Um, and they finally put... Where was it? Did I skip over it? Or did it just go to a... Well, they they posted the article. Okay, here it is. It's off to the right. Hunger for God on display at revival, and they link to 
an article written at the Kentucky uh, Annual Conference. So they didn't write anything properly, but they uh, they at least put a, a link to an article about it. Um, I, I'm going to put a, a link to um, some details was sent out in uh, the city of Wilmore about the uh, revival and how they accommodated. I didn't realize there were people that just drove to Wilmore and then slept in their cars. So there were local people in the city that opened their homes to people so they didn't have to sleep in their cars and stuff. So um, that was an email. I was real interested in this CBN News uh, cooperative that happened. Last night was the last night of, of the revival. There, some of them don't call it revival. Some call it, uh, well, they called it an outpouring, and we're going to go to that website here in a second. But CBN, Christian Broadcast News Channel, I've always associated them with televangelists, and I, I asked a couple of people, and they're like, yeah, it's televangelists. Somehow they got in there. You know, a lot of people got turned away. I, I did an interview with Dr. Jonathan Powers, uh, who's who was over there, and he was given a firsthand account of what was going on over there. If you haven't seen that interview, it's it's a good interview. Of course, I think all my interviews are good. But um, he said that they were doing a good job keeping other outfits out. There were big bands that offered to come play. They said, don't come. There were big um, preachers that offered to come preach. They said, don't come. There was um, um, Tucker Carlson wanted to come and, and highlight what was going on. They said, don't come. They were very good at being protective of this and keeping it local, but a CBN was able to film the last night, and they uh, had a live stream of, of worship last night, two and a half hours long. I, I watched about an hour of it this morning, and it was really, I don't know, it's its not the worship style I grew up with, I, I'm, but uh, they did it well. It was, it was pretty incredible. They had uh, one moment in particular where they just escalated to a really ecstatic place, and they had some gal singing in overalls, and I, whew, it was just amazing. Um and, you know, the, another thing that struck me in watching it is just they don't talk about race at all, but they have a lot of different ethnicities uh, represented thoughtlessly. Like it's not, It doesn't come off as like a very intentional virtue signaling thing. It just comes off as a body of Christ sort of thing. Um, one of the, as I've been watching this, you know, it weirds me out that CBN was, was given this you know, you, you click on this live stream and it takes you to CBN's YouTube channel. That that seems really weird to me. I don't know why that decision was made. But the other thing that's just really weirded me out all, all along, uh, I'll come back to that, is um, how it is that they structured the movement of the Holy Spirit at Asbury. Um, and so you have this statement from the president, Dr. Kevin Brown, and he kind of answered this concern of are they stopping the revival he says, I've been asked if Asbury is stopping this outpouring of God's Spirit and the stirring of human hearts. I have responded by pointing out that we cannot stop something that, did, that we did not start. This was never planned. Over the last few weeks, we have been honored to steward and host services and the guests who have traveled far and wide to attend them. The trajectory of renewal meetings is always outward, and that is, a beginning, that is beginning to occur. We continue to hear inspiring stories of hungry hearts setting aside daily routines and seeking out Christ at schools, churches, and communities in the U.S. and abroad. Yeah, that was something else I noticed as I watched the live stream, constant exhortation to take those blessings home, to receive forgiveness, to offer forgiveness, to, to take the revival to other places, um, and all that was really good. One of the things they've been very intentional about is 
this critique of, oh, it's just an emotional experience that doesn't go anywhere. I read this really good critique by uh, Not the Bee where he, he talked about how he went to revivals growing up, and later on in life, these people who participated in these revivals were leading just terribly ungodly and scandalous lives. Um, the prayer for this has been that that this is not just a blip, but it it makes a big impact on people's lives, a permanent impact. Now, this other thing about how you can't stop something you didn't start, my mind instantly went to First uh, Corinthians, no, First Thessalonians, chapter five, verse sixteen. It starts: Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Lots of good exhortations, but right in the middle of there, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. I've always interpreted that to mean putting an end to what the spirit is doing, you know, and so um, I think the the president's arguing we can't put an end to it. The spirit is spreading out from here. Uh, but even so, that that does seem to to slightly misrepresent what's going on. They've, they've gladly facilitated uh, worship for like two and a half weeks now, and now that's that's coming to a close. And so they limited the last couple of days. Um, it was an interesting decision. They limited it to people between the ages of 16, I want to say 23, which um, I, I think the, the idea there is to kind of make this synonymous with the collegiate day of prayer, which is, is explicitly referenced was referenced several times last night. They're trying to help these people support local campuses uh, or uh, uh, colleges around the country and connect them with local churches, which seems wonderful. The fact that they got Francis Chan on board uh, makes me trust it because I trust Francis Chan. It seems great. They have a, a number of really great—I'll put the, the link to this on, on uh, the show notes, but they have a lot of great little videos on here. I'd only ever seen a documentary once before on the 1970 revival at Asbury, and I watched it again, and it, it, it was amazing. It's in Hughes Chapel, same one that it's in today, and you have people standing exactly where they stood before, and you have these photos taken of people praying in front of the chancel exactly how they did before. Um, it's, it's, you know, I don't, we don't have time to, to play it here, but go uh, check these videos out and see if that's a, a ministry that you want to uh, support. Um, uh, there is this, this interesting concern that Americans, older American Christians have in particular for younger ones. They just, they, they feel very strongly about youth programs, they feel very strongly about colleges, and um, I've always had a concern about uh, affinity groups being uh a gateway into the church, meaning if we're gathered around anything other than the full body of Christ, I worry that we are uh, marrying the church to something ephemeral. Um, you're not always going to be young, so if you identify uh, uh, dying to self and being born again in Christ with a certain stage of life, then once you get old, you're just not going to identify with that anymore. So I, I do worry about the long-term implications of getting rid of the olds um, and only having young people at, at this decision point in their lives. But it is what it is, and I, I, I do not want to be the one of those voices detracting from what... It seems pretty clear the Holy Spirit was moving there, and um, hopefully uh, He will continue to move in, in lots of other college campuses. 
reportedly this is spilling out in lots of different directions. So uh, I hope it, it goes in, in a lot of good directions and results in a lot of transformed lives and a transformed society. Um, let's, let's move on. I could say more, but I, I won't. Uh, this is an article about the resolutions at jurisdictional conferences that happened this year. Um, talked, had some interviews with uh, one or two of the delegates. If you're not familiar with jurisdictional conferences, they are the stage between annual conferences and the general conference. They uh, elect bishops. Um, if you followed this at all, there was a, a large new slate of bishops elected, not one of which was conservative, many of which are just openly signaling to be very liberal. Uh, but they also passed in all the American jurisdictions. Well, their jurisdictions are only in America, first off. Um, that comes from kind of a, a race-conscious, uh, <laughs> kind of racist history. Uh, all, all of the jurisdictions passed resolutions that dealt with these three issues. And I did a video uh, for each of these three um, uh, resolutions that was adopted for my jurisdiction, but they're, they're all similar. Uh, one was leading with integrity. That was a plea for those leaving the United Methodist Church to give up any leadership posts immediately. The second was uh, global regionalization, a statement of support for creation of semi-autonomous regions of the United Methodist Church, especially in the United States, to give central conferences more control over their contextualized governance and to reduce the U.S.-centric nature of the General Conference. So this is uh, going to connect with the Christmas Covenant and now, according to something I learned today, the uh, Connectional Table. Um, and then the third is Queer Delegates' Call to Center Justice and Empowerment for LGBTQIA plus people in the UMC, urging United Methodists to support full inclusion of LGBTQ persons in the UMC's life and ministry. So those were the three things uh, my videos that I did on it, I, I recommend them. Uh, recently, some people discovered them and wrote me about it and said, hey, this is really good. But I made the case that all three of these signal a, li a liberal uh, victory over the United Methodist, United Methodist Church and maybe over the entire United Methodist denomination. Um, it does make clear in this article, these this is not legislation yet, but it signals the direction that they're going. So aspirational resolutions, that's what these are, serve an important purpose. They offer a statement of shared values and give voice to a desire for change. Most often, they express an eagerness to work toward a new and more Christ-like way of being in mission, ministry, and or covenant community with each other. They matter. So conservatives would disagree uh, with this being cast in a good light. Uh, people like me would say that this is just a, a public statement uh, with the sentiment of disobeying the, the general church's will stated by the general conference and an intention to upend what the general conference has done at the next general conference. If you follow the, the developments of the general church or if you watched what happened at 2019, a uh, special called general conference, um, the standing committee on central conference matters played a huge role in what happened at that conference. Uh, the traditional plan was, um, according to many people that I trust, gutted by this uh, committee privately before it was brought to the general conference. The reason that the traditional plan um, was not able to pass in its entirety was because it was, it was dismembered by uh, this group. 
This group is also the one responsible for the language that now has resulted in central conferences not being able to disaffiliate under paragraph 2553. Um, this, this is led by... Um, as I understand it, it's like um, there, there are a lot of bishops on board. There is central conference representation, but the, the central conference representation overlaps largely with uh, the Christmas covenant. Now, the Christmas covenant, and I've covered that in previous reporting, says that it was offered, uh, the, the website says that it was authored by people that were not in America, central conference people, but it doesn't have a list of authors at all. Um, there are some people that we're pretty sure are involved, and then other people that, that we don't know. It's not public. Uh, but the, the committee got together in Germany this week, Bromfels, Germany, and um, they were talking about the Christmas covenant and whether or not they wanted to present it. Um, uh, according to uh, some people on the committee, it was pushed very hard by the higher-ups and the connectional table. Uh, which is not a surprise. The connectional table has been the primary, one of the primary entities bringing legislation to the general conference that the general conference has repeatedly <laughs> shut down and not wanted. It's it's repeatedly brought brought legislation that is very much uh, of favor in the the liberal circles, liberal leadership. So this this very much the developments today. They did take a unanimous vote. Um, to uh, adopt the legislation promoted by the Connectional Table and the Christmas Covenant. And so regionalization is going to be a big uh, push at this next general conference. I think, uh, I think it'll fail because it requires a two-thirds vote. Um, but I could be wrong. I just know every single general conference, the bishops... Uh, no, 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 I should, I should speak more carefully. I'm aware that in Africa, the people that want to vote against the liberal leadership of the church have been instructed many times by their leadership to vote with the liberal leadership. That's where the money comes from, that's where the power comes from, and yet African delegations time after time have voted uh, to, to stand by conservative traditional values and, and not give in to the, the liberal takeover but every quadrennium is a, a new opportunity to bring new delegates in uh, or um, influence the delegates that are already there. So we'll see how they vote this year. Um, I wanted to, to focus on this article by Lovett Weems, Disobedience Didn't Start with the Sexuality Debate. I uh, initially encountered this um, article on the UM Clergy uh, Facebook page, and I didn't respond well to do it. To it, I anticipated some of the arguments that he made, and um, <laughs> I didn't like it. But I decided to take a second look at it, and you know what? I I decided, I decided it's worth taking his arguments seriously. Now, Levitt Weems, he's been influencing the denomination for some time. He leads uh, the Lewis Center for Church. What is it called? The Lewis Center for Church. Leadership at Wesley Theological Seminary. I get uh, regular mailings from them, and um, you know, I, I'm sure he's a perfectly nice man. I just I'm not very impressed with what the Lewis Center does. Um, I've most recently dealt with them in sexual ethics training, where they don't even necessarily talk about what's in the Bible. Uh, in my mind, sexual ethics is very clear. God says it's wrong here, so you just don't do it. God says this is okay, so it's okay to do it. Uh, for them, it's about consent and power. 
Uh, you have to be able to give consent, and you cannot give consent whenever power dynamics are off. So my grandfather uh, dating and marrying my grandmother, who is the church secretary, was inappropriate and uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I just don't agree. Um, and then, you know, they focus just on um, 50 simple things you can do to revitalize your church, which I'm, I'm sure is helpful for some people, but it, it really doesn't capitalize on the gospel much so far as I can tell. But he, he lifts up a historical critique here where um, he, he, he notes that there have been several stages. History shows that ignoring general conference legislation did not begin with the issue of homosexuality. Such resistance has a long history. So he talks about that history. I don't think it's, I don't think it's an exhaustive history, but he gives a history of slavery. At the Christmas Conference of 1784, it condemned slavery as an abomination and required all members holding slaves to set them free or withdraw from the society. There was immediate and massive disobedience. And then he talks about women uh, lay representation and clergy rights within the EUB and the Methodist Church at that time and the ways in which they rebelled at that point. Um, there was the performing marriages for divorced people. Methodists used to be very clear that if someone was divorced, they could not remarry. Uh, Let's see, where was that? Um, if they had a living former spouse, um, except for the innocent party in the case of adultery. Where did they get those rules? Uh, the Bible. Um, but even so, they changed those rules uh, in 1939 when they all got together. Some of those bodies changed beforehand. Uh, racial equality uh, talked about um, those disobedient uh, actions done um, in the 1960s, many white Methodist churches still refused admittance of black people to worship, which we would all agree is bad. Uh, there were pro uh, confrontations. One came in 1964 when a biracial group, including two Methodist bishops, was denied admission to Galloway Memorial Methodist Church in Mississippi. Um, and then clergy smoking. <laughs> and then rebaptism and open itinerancy. Um, so he focuses on all these things and he says, um, the purpose of our, this article is neither to justify nor condemn these violations. Um, the universal compliance with the general conference decisions has regularly been violated without, uh, throughout history. So that point alone, I don't think anyone can contest or would contest. The question is, what are we supposed to do with this information? Um, and he says he's not here to, to praise it or justify it or condemn it, um, he just focuses on this particular issue. Why are some broken rules easily tolerated while others, as in the case of homosexuality, bring the denomination to the brink of schism? I think that's a good question. I'm going to come back to it. Um, he says the general conference has power to act only to the extent that those actions carry with them sufficient credibility and moral authority to be accepted. I would heavily contest that. I think that's an opinion. I don't, I don't think that's true at all. The, the general conference has the power to act to the extent that a majority is accomplished at the general conference, or uh, sometimes a supermajority, but the it, it can pass anything it wants, and it should be able to. So, but he says whenever it doesn't have sufficient credible credibility and moral authority, uh, those in the United Methodist traditions have responded in several ways. Most common response has been some type of rejection, resistance, and advocacy for change. So he, the the implicit. Thing, or maybe he says it explicitly in another case, homosexuality is not worthy of um, 
this. We've 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 spoken out of turn in adopting this legislation, so this sizable minority is right to continually rebel. So the point of these illustrations is not necessarily, I would put necessarily into there, but he doesn't say, that general conference actions are meaningless and that violations do not matter. Both are important. In some cases, the violations are inconsequential and are properly ignored. At other times, general conference actions strike at the heart of who we are and are rightfully enforced. So as history shows, but as history shows, there are those times when violations are examples of tendencies to overreach uh, and control beyond moral consensus and large segments of the church. So the control thing is what he picks on here. We have a majority that is trying to control people sexually. They don't have the moral license to do that because they don't have sufficient credibility and moral authority. It's just, it, it's, it's like the divorce thing. Too many people start, started getting divorced. We couldn't hold the line on that. Well, now too many people are gay. We can't hold the line on that. I think that would be a line that some people would um, draw. His final big statement that I uh, uh, underlined is, it is hard to justify selecting only one issue, homosexuality, for such intricate and detailed enforcement mechanisms. So that's the thing that I want to uh, hone in on before we go to the, the next article. But for some people, homosexuality is just one more chapter in a long story of liberation. There are these things that bigots have just been hung up on for thousands of years, and we're shedding each one of them one by one. Now, as a conservative, I, I do not—I would actually say that, um, that sexual ethics strikes at the heart of the Christian faith, that it is not something off to the side. It's not something governed by principles of consent and, and power. It's something governed directly by God who— designed sex to operate only within a certain way in very strict confines as a, a mystical representation of Christ and his church, as explained in Ephesians. Now, um, we would be mistaken to look at homosexuality <clears throat> as, or uh, wide, widespread homosexual practice as just an outgrowth of the um, erotic love that straight people share, uh, heterosexual people um, I, I actually reject these categories. I don't think humans fit into sexual boxes. I think it's it's scandalous that we promote this lie that people fit in these sexual boxes. But uh, homosexuality, the widespread adoption of that, and now the, the adoption of um, transsexual understandings of what sexuality is, they're all connected to um, ideology that began with Freud and Kinsey and went through Alfred P. Money they are not historically recognizable understandings of sexuality. They're new. They're synthetic. They are um, not helpful in understanding how sexuality actually operates. And there's a huge disjoint between um, LGBTQ plus gender theory, modern gender theory, and the innate human sexual experience as seen anthropologically through history and as experienced subjectively when people get off their high horse and stop um, <laughs> uh, pretending this is working. It's not working. And no matter how many acronyms we add to the LGBTQQIA plus two spirit stuff, you're not going to be able to make people happy sexually because humans outside of dying to themselves and being born in Christ are going to be miserable in all the ways, including sexually. So this is a, a root fundamental issue that um, is not something that, that bigots only care about, although there are bigots involved, 
This is something that is um, just uh, terribly important, and we are unwise to dismiss it. Now, the second article um, tied to this is written by Rebecca Simon Peter, who I think holds the record of writing the highest percentage of articles. I, everything I read about her, I disagree with. Uh, so I'm sure she's well-intentioned. But just the front picture on this tells you what it's about. Um, and then she writes this um, pretty simple piece on just... <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny. It starts off with quantum physics and how everything's connected. And um, then she gets to... Here's the trouble. Church culture still functions as if we're living in Newtonian, maybe even biblical times. If the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, then it's good enough for me. But the world has moved on. Most young people consider themselves to be spiritual, but they have little to no experience with organized religion, nor often do they want that experience. So people like me who read the Bible would just say, if somebody doesn't want that experience with Jesus, it's because he's not calling them. It's not because we're not conforming to the culture. We're not getting with the times. Um, people like me, I, I, this is just speaking past me, because when we're try, saying it looks like we're in biblical times, that's kind of exactly what we're going for. We're trying to be a part of something eternal. We're trying to be a part of something that doesn't change with the times, because you know what? The times are miserable. This generation is evil, and we don't want to be like them. The Bible tells us to come out of the world, to be different from the world, and the notion that we have to become like the world to minister to the world is... Uh, What's the point? I just don't get it, you know? Now, at a certain point, it becomes ridiculous uh, if I were saying, you know, we need to be speaking Latin and doing nothing but chant. Yeah, that's, that's not accessible at all. But um, to, to insist on having a different culture, having different values, having different practices, you know, some of it is maybe harmless. She talks about COVID-19 and how it required churches to, to do online worship. My churches do that. Um, it's fine, you know, but to imagine that uh, uh, we, <laughs> all of this requires, she says, a willingness to let go. So here's that control thing. We must be willing to let go of our need for control and certainly, and instead, explore the unknown. We must open ourselves to the transformative power of love and grace. And you know what? This is America. It is anyone's prerogative to be as open as you want to be. But count me out. Um, I, I believe that God's holy word is clear. It expects for me to be closed in some ways, open in some ways, and it's for God to decide how I'm going to do that. Uh, it's not for the spirit of this age to decide. I fully, I entirely believe that, that people who reason this way, who lead churches this way, here in a century, these churches just aren't even going to exist because there's no point in them. They don't correct the culture. They don't um, lift up God's eternal word as, as something different from other forms of wisdom. I, I just don't see the point. And I, I feel sorry for people who are involved in thinking and approaching things this way. I just think it results in this constant like vigilance of what's the culture doing? What's the new hip thing that we can be uh, doing? Can we do Snapchat? Can we do uh, uh, Instagram? Can we do TikTok? Oh, we should be on TikTok. Oh, if your pastor's not on TikTok, they're not with, you know, just give me a break. <laughs> Give me that old-time religion. It's good enough for me. All right, last thing. I want to do something positive. Well, actually, it starts with something negative. These awful earthquakes in, in Turkey and Syria. I, uh, I follow an account on Twitter. <laughs> I was just bashing pastors on Twitter. But Twitter really is cool. But I don't do it because I'm trying to be a good pastor. Or I kind of... Anyway, I'm not going to argue with myself. 
the there was this account I was following that just had video after video of people in different Turkish and Syrian cities driving around and just seeing these high-rise buildings collapsing. It was just an awful... I just spent... I was out on my front lawn just praying for these people. It's awful. But uh, UMCOR, internationally known for being an excellent disaster response organization, has responded. Um, they have a great um, video here that you can post on social media. I posted it on my church's pages. I would urge you to do it as well. Um, they're partnering with International Blue Crescent. Um, they're the ones that are on the ground doing the work, and they're, they're, sending, they're collecting money and sending it over there. If you want to um, support, let's see, there was a link somewhere in here. You can go directly to there, and you can make a one-time monetary gift or a, uh, a donation amount, and you can stipulate that you want it to go directly to Turkey, Syria. So um, I, I, I think UMCOR has a good track record. If you have some extra money that you'd like to go to thousands, of, how many people? Thousands? 41,000 people we know are already dead. I don't know how many injured. It's going to be a long, hard slog. Um, make sure that out of your abundance that, that you're giving to, to those who are, are needy. So anyway, that's going to conclude my time. I'm sure I went over 30 minutes, but I hope it's all been uh, worthy for you. God bless you in your ministry. If you're a liberal, I hope this helps you understand conservatives better. If you're a conservative, I hope you're doing well in this season. I'll, uh, I'll be back reporting on one of the annual conferences next week, so keep tuned in my stuff. Bye.